The following episode of Lyrics of Their Life podcast deals with serious issues that may be distressing to some listeners. It includes references to drugs, sex, violence, suicide, self-harm, and coarse language. It is not suitable for children, and listener discretion is strongly advised. If you at any time require support, please contact your local crisis centre. Hello and welcome to Lyrics of Their Life, the podcast that talks about the extraordinary lives lived by those that wrote or performed the songs we know and love. I'm your host Adam Hampton and in today's episode we jump right back into the story of Eminem, right from where we left off. In part one, we explored what Eminem, aka Marshall Mathers' troubled childhood looked like, all the way through to the Slim Shady EP, as well as signing his first ever major record deal with Dr. Dre. As Eminem battled severe bullying, toxic family and relationship troubles, and adversity as a white rapper attempting to make it in the cutthroat underground rap battle scene, which was predominantly dominated by African American rappers. We saw Eminem lose his beloved Uncle Ronnie, the moment the Dirty Dozen was formed with Eminem's best friend Proof, the birth of Eminem's daughter Haley, and Eminem was just about ready to head into the recording studio with Dr. Dre for the very first time. So, if you haven't yet listened to part one, I highly recommend checking that out first. So without further ado, let's get straight into it. This is Eminem, part two. This is... Lyrics of their life. With Eminem, now signed to Aftermath Entertainment, Dr. Dre wasted no time, having Eminem work on his second studio album, known as the Slim Shady LP, a bigger and better extended and reworked version of the Slim Shady EP, but with new tracks and improved production from Dr. Dre. The Slim Shady LP was recorded during late 1997 to mid-1998 in Eminem's home base on 8 Mile Road, Ferndale, Michigan, in Studio 8. Eminem had looked up to Dr. Dre prior to getting signed and said, I didn't want to be starstruck or kiss his ass too much. I'm just a little white boy from Detroit. I had never seen stars, let alone Dr. Dre. Dr. Dre, believe it or not, when first hearing Eminem on radio, actually thought Eminem was African American instead of white. But as previously stated in part one, he didn't care what he looked like or what his colleagues thought about signing him. He just knew he could rap and they needed to sign him ASAP. During the studio sessions, Dr. Dre would lay down the beats and Eminem would compliment him with his lyrics. Eminem was described in the studio as a perfectionist and was very focused on making it. Angry with the world around him, Eminem in the vision of Slim Shady tried his best to write his most crazy and messed up lyrics he could possibly think of. 
It was around this time that Paul Rosenberg jumped back on board and decided he would help manage Eminem's career and also be his music lawyer, which would come in handy down the track. Paul cared about Eminem like a father figure, despite only being a year older than him, and would prove to be a loyal and strong manager for Eminem over the coming years. Paul would often pull Eminem into line when he needed to, and he was a great marketer and liked to stay out of the studio and allow Eminem to create his magic, something that Eminem really respected about Paul. Just before the first single's release from the Slim Shady LP, Eminem ran into his childhood hero, LL Cool J, in a footlocker store of all places. LL Cool J was already aware of who he was and quoted one of his lyrics upon greeting him, which was an incredible moment for Eminem. Eminem even gave Cool J a sneak peek at his new album and pre-played it for him. On the 13th of October, 1998, Eminem released his debut single, titled Just Don't Give a Fuck, from the Slim Shady LP. While the track didn't manage to chart, it put Eminem's ruthless Slim Shady persona on the map for the very first time. The music video for the track depicts a young abused Eminem at the hands of his mother as he grows up and then comes back to choke her out, which did happen to cause some controversy, but the video just wasn't seen enough at the time for it to blow up. The track had been re-recorded from the previous Slim Shady EP under Dr. Dre and was hands down Eminem's best track yet with a new and improved beat. Eminem covers his alcoholism, his relationship with Kim and his mother and he takes a swing at rapper Champ Town and Vanilla Ice and addresses that he just doesn't care about the rumours circulating about him that he's on drugs as this underrated but controversial track would seemingly fly under the radar for many years. For Eminem, however, it would be his follow-up single that would set him up on his long and prosperous journey in the music industry. On the 25th of January, 1999, Eminem released his second single, titled My Name Is. My Name Is managed to chart at number two in the UK, reaching the top five in three countries, including New Zealand, and charted at number 13 in Australia. Despite only charting at number 36 in the US, it received mass airplay and became quite popular, selling 2 million copies of the single, with estimates suggesting 5 million copies have been sold to this day around the world. Eminem at this time was said to have taken a couple of shifts back at the Gilbert's Lodge just to make ends meet as the song started receiving airtime. And as soon as My Name Is started to take off, Eminem told his employer at Gilbert's Lodge that he wouldn't be coming back and requested them to remove him from the roster. The track was actually the very first song recorded for the LP as Dr. Dre and Eminem realised that they had an instant connection, and after chatting and getting to know each other, the track was finished in less than two hours, with Dr. Dre recalling that when Eminem first blurted out the words, Hi, my name is Slim Shady, that he was blown away, and Dre knew at that time that they had an artist that was ready to do big things in the industry. My Name Is acts as Slim Shady's introduction to the world, and had people talking straight away for its highly controversial lyrics and music video. 
Eminem managed to utilise dark humour, adding in some shock value lines, intentionally, to attract attention to his music, which was pure genius, as he fused this with his fresh rapping technique, humorous sound effects, and the way he wasn't afraid to make fun of himself, being a white boy, with his bleach blonde short hair. The music Eminem produced just seemed to appeal perfectly to the so-called white kids from the US, Australia, and all the way to Europe and the UK. But even over time, the African-American community got behind him also. Eminem stated that he liked to stretch the truth in songs to make it seem worse or more controversial, and that when rapping his humorous lines, he sometimes holds his nose when recording, to produce a completely different nasally sound, like in the beginning of the song, when he says, can I have your attention please? The music video was especially instrumental in the track's success, displaying that he doesn't take himself too seriously, as Eminem depicts a range of characters such as a porn star, a scientist, a ventriloquist dummy, Marilyn Manson, Bill Clinton, who was also president at the time, and TV show host Johnny Carson. There was so much going on in the video that it engaged the audience, bringing them back time and time again to watch the video. When Eminem first realised that My Name Is was taking off, he was staying at Paul Rosenberg's cockroach-infested apartment in New York City and was couch-surfing there at the time with little to no money. As he was quoted as saying, You had cockroaches the size of fucking mice. I slept in that one room where the mattress was on the floor and I woke up in the morning and I heard the roach before I fucking saw it. That evening, when Eminem was staying at Paul's, Paul flicked to MTV and found the music video for My Name Is being shown for the very first time. Paul sat up and watched it all and attempted to wake Eminem, but he missed the whole thing as he wouldn't wake up. When speaking with Genius about what it felt like when he first took off, he said, That's when it was like, Okay, this isn't a joke anymore. We had kind of felt that, being in the studio with Dre and shit, but once that single came out, my life changed like that. Within a day. Just going outside. I couldn't go outside anymore. In a day. It went from the day before, doing whatever the fuck I wanted to do, because nobody knew who the fuck I was, to holy shit, people are fucking following us. It was crazy. That's when shit just got real. It was a lot to deal with at once. The music video went on to be named at number 71 in the top 100 music videos, according to NME, while the track itself made it to number 39 on the greatest hip-hop songs of all time list, according to Rolling Stone magazine. My Name Is also earned Eminem's first awards in the music industry, with a Grammy for Best Solo Rap Performance in 2000, and an MTV Video Music Award for Best New Artist in a Video in 1999. When speaking about how he first came up with the concept of the lyrics, he told Genius, quote, Dre put on the Labi Sifre record, and I was just like, Hi, my name is... That beat was talking to me. I was like, yo, this is it. This is my shot. If I don't impress this guy, I'm going back home and I'm fucked. I knew Dre wasn't an easy person to please. I made sure that everything he had a beat for, I had a rhyme ready to go, or I came up with a rhyme on the spot. Some of the most outrageous lines that landed Eminem in some trouble, however, included the lines, 
Hi kids, do you like violence? Wanna see me stick 9 inch nails through each one of my eyelids? I can't figure out which Spice Girl I want to impregnate. Got pissed off and ripped Pamela Lee's tits off. Walked in the strip club, had my jacket zipped up, flashed the bartender, then stuck my dick in the tip cup. While to many this would be crossing the line, Eminem intelligently and purposely wrote these lyrics to shock and earn the attention he was looking for, and it obviously worked. The more publicity, whether it be bad or good, the better. And Eminem turned some of his haters into some of his biggest fans, as they were always talking about him. In My Name Is, Dr. Dre utilised a 1975 beat sample by English musician Labby Sifre, who identified as a gay man, an activist, who at first actually blocked Eminem from releasing the track due to the perceived homophobic line that originally read, My English teacher wanted to have sex in junior high. The only problem was, my English teacher was a guy. Eminem agreed to remove the line and replace it with, My English teacher wanted to flunk me in junior high. Thanks a lot. Next semester, I'll be 35. With this line replaced, it was allowed to go ahead and to be released. Labby Sifre found the original line to be offensive and labelled it as lazy writing. Eminem managed to piss a lot of people off with this track, including his own mother Debbie Mathers, who filed a $10 million lawsuit against her own son for slander over the line that read, 99% of my life I was lied to. I just found out my mum does more dope than I do. I told her I'd grow up to be a famous rapper, make a record about doing drugs, and name it after her. He also rapped the line, When I was little, I used to get so hungry, I would throw fits. How you gonna breastfeed me, mum? You ain't got no tits. Eminem was in the middle of his first ever record signing for his fans at the Virgin Megastore in Times Square when Eminem was served the court documents by a representative of his mother. With cameras all around him, Eminem was frustrated, saying, They knew where I'd be, and they had to physically serve me. The guy got tackled. He was stupid. You don't need to physically serve someone anymore, like in the movies. But the guy was being a cowboy. The lawsuit would be settled much later in 2001, with Eminem having to pay out $25,000 in total, with his mother Debbie receiving just $1,600 of that, after the judge ruled that Debbie's attorney receives $23,000 of the settlement. At the time, Eminem hadn't yet earned much money and was basically still poor, as royalties hadn't come in yet and he was living off touring money, so basically, Debbie took away what little money Eminem did have to support his family with, and therefore it hurt Haley as Eminem struggled to buy diapers and put food on the table for at least a couple of weeks to months. Eminem would include a reference to this lawsuit in the line, I just settled all my lawsuits, fuck you Debbie, from the track Without Me much later in his career. When speaking during the court battle and afterwards, Debbie would deny all of the claims made against her in the song My Name Is, and stated that Eminem just wanted to be perceived as hard done by. Eminem's uncle Todd also claimed that Eminem over-dramatised some things, and stated that despite Eminem's claims in his songs, Debbie was very protective of him when he was younger, 
and that Eminem would do anything to break up her relationships with her new boyfriends, as he often got jealous of them taking the attention away from him. Eminem felt like as soon as he found success, he had all sorts of so-called family members coming out of the woodwork for handouts, or acting like his best friend all of a sudden, just like when someone wins the lottery. Eminem was the first in his family, and extended family, to find success, as most of his family lived off welfare or have lived on low-income housing all of their life. Eminem would later state that he grew to dislike My Name Is and stopped performing it live, as he said, I didn't hate the song when I first made it, but the shit that I really, really like, that I put my heart and soul into, I don't get recognised for, like the way I am. There's a difference between me being funny and me being real. I feel like I don't get recognised for my best shit, the shit that's my real true feelings and emotions. With the release of My Name Is, Eminem also gathered the attention of Insane Clown Posse, a rap and rock duo known as Joseph Bruce, aka Violent J, and Joseph Otzler, aka Shaggy Too Dope, who had been in a feud with Eminem since 1997 when Eminem had included their name on a flyer for Eminem's release party for the Slim Shady EP, with the word maybe next to it, insinuating that they were going to attend. Violent J, of Insane Clown Posse, was furious that Eminem hadn't asked them first, and with J's negative reaction, Eminem took to radio dissing the duo. From here on out, Insane Clown Posse wrote and performed a parody song called Slim Anus, dissing Eminem's character Slim Shady, along with a couple of other songs. Their rivalry would last up until 2005, when Proof helped both parties come to their senses, and they resolved their issues over a game of 10-pin bowling. It was clear, however, that Eminem's alter ego Slim Shady was only just getting started, and that fearless and controversial no-filter-style rapping would soon make him one of the biggest stars in not only the hip-hop scene, but as a worldwide pop sensation. On February 23rd, 1999, the Slim Shady LP was officially released, where it peaked at number one on the US R&B album chart, and the US Top R&B and Hip Hop Album Chart, lasting a total of 92 weeks inside the Hip Hop Chart. The Slim Shady LP was a massive hit in the US, even breaking onto the mainstream charts, debuting at number 2 on the Billboard 200, where it lasted a total of 100 weeks on the chart, and sold over 283,000 copies in just its first week of being released, and has now sold over 7 million copies in the US. The UK also loved the album, where it peaked at number 10, selling over 1 million copies there. 2 million were sold around Europe, and it's estimated that a total of 10.5 million copies have been sold to this day around the world. The Slim Shady LP was a massive smash hit, but brought about loads of criticism and controversy from many angry parents protesting for the album to be banned as they believe that children should not be exposed to such music. However, Eminem was backed by musicians such as Bono of U2, Courtney Love and Melissa Etheridge who claimed it was his right to free speech with Bono of U2 making an excellent point stating that no one protested or marched in the streets when Johnny Cash continually sung about murder or dark topics. 
Eminem didn't want people to take his music too literally, and that in his mind, it is simply dark humour. It was designed to shock, and if people don't get it, don't listen to it, and don't let your kids buy it. The album itself was named the winner of the best rap album at the Grammys in the year 2000. It still remains in Rolling Stone magazine and NME's list of top albums, and is considered by some as his all-time greatest album. With the success of the LP, Eminem left behind the underground scene and was now one of the hottest acts in the music business. He would be swarmed by fans and the media that were all hoping to get the next biggest controversial story out of him. Eminem's rapping style on the LP was described as like a nasally whine, but in a positive sense. According to the New York Times, they described his rapping as calmly sarcastic delivery and compared him to the early Beastie Boys, but turned cynical. He was commended on his unique ability to portray a number of different characters by altering his voice during his songs, and by usually adding a comical sense to the tracks. Also included on the Slim Shady LP were the tracks Role Model, Guilty Conscience, Brain Damage, and Rock Bottom, while another type of alter ego named Ken Caniff would also make an appearance for the very first time, in a track of the same name, with Ken Caniff being voiced by Detroit rapper Aristotle and acting as a homosexual man that has an issue with and pokes fun at Eminem's lyrics by prank calling him. This character would make the odd appearance on Eminem's albums in the future, becoming voiced by Eminem himself after Eminem had a falling out with Aristotle. The fact that Eminem continued to use the character in his own voice angered Aristotle as he wanted to continue playing the role on his albums. In retaliation, Aristotle would later release a mixtape as the Ken Caniff character where he ridiculed Eminem. The track Role Model was the next to be released as a single but only managed to reach number 11 on the bubbling under R&B chart in the US. In Role Model, Eminem uses sarcasm to address those claiming his music incites violence and encourages children to do the wrong thing, and basically, that he doesn't want to be perceived as a role model anyway. As Eminem was quoted as saying, The message behind it was just complete sarcasm. I wanted to be clear, don't look at me like I'm a fucking role model. In the song, Eminem again refers to his dislike for Vanilla Ice and throws in a controversial line relating to Hillary Clinton, as he raps the lines, So if I said I never did drugs, that would mean I lie and get fucked more than the president does. Hillary Clinton tried to slap me and call me a pervert. I ripped her fucking tonsils out and fed her sherbet. My nerves hurt and lately I'm on edge. Grabbed Vanilla Ice and ripped out his blonde dreads. Every girl I ever went out with has gone les. Follow me and do exactly what the song says. Smoke weed, take pills, drop out of school, kill people and drink. As Eminem displays exactly why people shouldn't refer to him as a role model. The song Guilty Conscience was also released as a single, where it saw a lot of success in the UK and peaked at number one on the UK R&B chart and number five on their UK singles chart. This would be the very first time that Dr. Dre and Eminem shared the vocals on a track and the concept for the song came about one day while the pair were in the gym together. Dre suggested that they write a song where the two are completely different, almost like Good Meets Evil or Night and Day, which was originally the title of the song. 
Eminem headed home and wrote the song basing it around people making stupid decisions. And Eminem, aka Slim Shady, would act like the evil or the devil on the person's shoulder. And Dr. Dre would be portrayed as good or an angel-like figure on the other shoulder. As they fight to have their influence on the situation and the person. MTV, however, would heavily censor the song and music video, which ultimately affected its sales and charting positions in the US. The song's themes explore underage sex, rape, robbery and infidelity, and was seen as far too grim for radio or MTV. While Eminem and Dre were clearly highlighting some common issues within society at the time, Slim Shady's character came under fire for his suggestions in the song. Eminem said that he wanted to portray the grim reality of what is going on in society at the time, especially in places like Detroit, where he was from, and without trying to rub people up the wrong way, he tried to take a comedian's approach to the song and make jokes about rape, but obviously this didn't come off the same way and was always risky, as it's a very serious subject. Eminem came under fire by loads of critics and activists stating that he was promoting and exploiting hate, homophobia, misogyny and violence in his lyrics. One DJ even went as far as snapping his Slim Shady LP live on air as a statement against his lyrics involving violence. Eminem replied to all the critics and summed up his work quite fairly by saying, quote, My album isn't for younger kids to hear. It has an advisory sticker, and you must be 18 to get it. That doesn't mean younger kids won't get it, but I'm not responsible for every kid out there. I'm not a role model, and I don't claim to be. While the critics continued to diss the LP, and some attempted to get it banned or censored, many also came out to support Eminem, stating that it was simply the parents' role to monitor what their children listened to, and that the album was mostly satire and included dark humour that was not supposed to be taken literally. Eminem also stated that in his rap battle days, controversial raps with these sort of themes were common practice as that was real life issues happening in Detroit. While Eminem also stated that the video and song was supposed to reflect problems within America and the two sides of an individual that tussles between good and evil and that sadly, in America, evil usually wins. The song Brain Damage delves into Eminem's experiences of being bullied at high school by D'Angelo Bailey to an exaggerated extent. For example, Eminem references that his brains almost fell out of his head. As Eminem highlights some hard truths, such as the lack of care his teachers had for his safety, despite hinting to them that he was getting bullied, and many people including his mother and teachers thinking that he was on drugs. Due to Eminem's description of a number of bullying-related events that took place, later in December 2001, D'Angelo Bailey, who was now working as a janitor and garbage man in Roseville, Michigan, filed a lawsuit for $1 million against Eminem for slandering him in the track Brain Damage. D'Angelo's attorney claimed Eminem had been lying about the bullying, despite selling his own story two years prior in 1999 to Rolling Stone magazine, admitting to being Eminem's bully. 
The case was dismissed later in 2003 by Judge Deborah Savito, who, believe it or not, provided her final judgment in the form of a rap that she had wrote by saying that the song was too far exaggerated to be taken seriously as defamation, and she sided with Eminem, with the case being closed officially in 2005. The lyrics to Brain Damage are quite full-on and surround the truth, but as mentioned earlier, are somewhat blown out of proportion. As Eminem talks about how he would fake being sick to escape the bullies, the moment he was beaten up, and the time he was taken to hospital after D'Angelo attacked him. Then Eminem goes on a rampage of what he wished could have happened if he had it his way, as he raps the lines... Way before my baby daughter Haley, I was harassed daily by this fat kid named D'Angelo Bailey, an 8th grader who acted obnoxious cause his father boxes, so every day he'd shove me in the lockers. One day, he came in the bathroom while I was pissing and had me in the position to beat me into submission. He banged my head against the urinal till he broke my nose, soaked my clothes in blood, grabbed me and choked my throat. I tried to plead and tell him we shouldn't beef, but he just wouldn't leave. He kept choking me and I couldn't breathe. He looked at me and said, you gonna die honky. The principal walked in and started helping him stomp me. I made them think that they beat me to death, holding my breath for like five minutes before they finally left. Then I got up and ran to the janitor's storage booth, kicked the door hinge loose and ripped out the four inch screws grab some sharp objects, brooms and foreign tools. This is for every time you took my orange juice or stole my seat in the lunchroom and drank my chocolate milk. Every time you tipped my tray and it dropped and spilt. I'm getting you back, bully, now once and for good. I cocked the broomstick back and swung hard as I could and beat him over the head with it till I broke the wood. Knocked him down, stood on his chest with one foot made it home later that same day, started reading the comics, and suddenly everything became grey. I couldn't even see what I was trying to read. I went deaf, and my left ear started to bleed. My mother started screaming, What are you on drugs? Look at you, you're getting blood all over my rug. She beat me over the head with the remote control, opened a hole, and my whole brain fell out of my skull. I picked it up and screamed, Look bitch, what have you done? Oh my god, I'm sorry son. I said fuck it, took it and stuck it back up in my head, then I sewed it shut and put a couple of screws in my neck. With these harsh lyrics that were also directed towards Eminem's mother Debbie, it shows that for him, the many things that Debbie did wrong when raising him outweighed the good, as Eminem struggled to appear grateful that she was actually there to take him to hospital and nurse him back to health after this incident. Eminem elaborated on these days of bullying when he was quoted as saying, I was beat up in the bathrooms, in the hallways, shoved in the lockers, for the most part of being the new kid. What got me through this phase of life was rapping. I found something. Yeah, this kid over here may have more chicks or better clothes, but he can't do this like me. I started to feel like I was getting a little respect. Due to the success of the Slim Shady LP and through the help of his manager Paul Rosenberg, Eminem was rewarded by Interscope Records with his very own record label, naming it Shady Records, so early into his career. This opened the door for Eminem to first sign his friend Proof and the Dirty Dozen, aka D12. 
The label A&R, Mark LaBelle, would state that Shady Records is, quote, a boutique label, but with all the outlets of a major, and Interscope Records, backing up our every move. Initially, Interscope were concerned about giving Eminem his very own label so soon, and thought he would become too distracted with all of his recent success as a solo performer, but instead decided to take that gamble, especially after Dr. Dre got in their ear. Eminem would maintain that there was one rule when signing artists, and that was that they must be great, complex lyricists, and utilise plenty of wordplay, as he did himself. Eminem, being the loving father he is, expressed that since the LP taking off and having his own label, that he couldn't help but spoil Haley, as he said, quote, This last Christmas, there were so many fucking presents under the tree. My daughter wasn't born with a silver spoon in her mouth, but she's got one now. I can't stop myself from spoiling her. At times, Haley and Kim would fly out to see Eminem on tour and in the studio in LA. Despite spoiling Haley when he could, he tried to keep her grounded and her life as normal as possible by sending her to a public school instead of a private school. Eminem would fly home to watch her in school plays, read to her class, and even attended field trips with her and her school. It was at this time, when Eminem was first becoming a successful artist, that he was afraid of spending his money, other than on Haley as he was worried it would all disappear if he started to spend it. So he, Kim, and Haley lived at Kim's mother's house for some time, until they moved into a large home in Sterling Heights, Michigan, just a few months later. Another song on the Slim Shady LP was titled 97 Bonnie and Clyde, and was reworked for the album after featuring on the Slim Shady EP, and included some added vocals by Eminem's daughter Haley. The dark song delves into Slim Shady exposing of Kim's body in the ocean, with Haley by his side, as he wanted to have Haley's vocals on the track. Eminem told Kim that he was taking Haley to her favourite fast food restaurant, Chuck E. Cheese, but instead made the detour to the recording studio to record Haley's vocals. Of course, when Kim found out, she wasn't very happy, as Eminem was quoted as saying, When she found out that I used her daughter to write a song about killing her, she fucking blew. We had just gotten back together for a couple of weeks. Then I played her the song, and she bugged the fuck out. When Haley gets old enough, I'm going to explain it to her. I'll let her know that mummy and daddy weren't getting along at that time. None of it was to be taken too literally, although at the time, I wanted to fucking do it. Eminem stated that at times he felt like murdering her for the way she treated him, and instead of acting it out, he instead wrote it into his songs to vent his frustrations. Eminem said he felt like a lot of fathers go through similar stuff, relating to mothers threatening to take their kids away, like Kim did with Haley, and he said a lot of the time, he and others would no doubt think about it, but most people just wouldn't say it. The lyrics in this track, however, are quite hateful and harsh, and came under much scrutiny from critics over the years. Finally, the track Rock Bottom appears to be one of just two songs that was written before the Slim Shady gimmick was established. Eminem actually wrote this song after being fired from Gilbert's at one stage, and not knowing where to go from from here, with little to no money to feed his child. Of course, he was lucky enough to get his job back, 
but Eminem explores his anger over living in near poverty and how society allows this to happen to so many people. Eminem recorded the song just before overdosing that same day, luckily surviving to tell the tale. On the 29th of April, 1999, Eminem found himself being presented on the front cover of Rolling Stone magazine for the very first time, in edition 811, and it wouldn't be the last time he'd be featured on the front cover either. On the 21st of May, 1999, Tragedy struck Eminem and the group D12 when they discovered their good friend and fellow MC, Cornell Pitts, aka Bugs, had been murdered in broad daylight. Bugs was only 21 years old and was simply minding his own business, spending time with friends and family on a picnic, when things quickly turned into a horror scene in a matter of minutes. It all escalated when Bugs' friend's cousin was sprayed with a high-powered water gun by a group of men in a vehicle in a drive-by-like scenario. This fired up Bugs, who came over to step in, breaking into a heated argument. The friend of the man who pulled the water gun out revealed a real firearm while seated in the car and opened fire on Bugs, shooting him three times in the face as Bugs fell to the ground. The car then proceeded to run over him before driving off. Police then followed the men before they ploughed into a tree on their attempted getaway. 911 was called, but by the time the paramedics had arrived, Bugs was already dead, leaving behind a grieving mother and three siblings. When the D12 members and Eminem heard of the news, they were devastated and angered. The gunman named Andre Hamilton was arrested and given a life sentence in prison. Proof stated about Bugs' death, quote, It just makes you look at life more serious. At this point, we're trying to gather everything he recorded to make an LP. With Bugs' sad and tragic death, leaving a missing spot free in D12, Eminem suggested that in his honour, he would take his place and hopefully be the spark they needed to make it in the industry. Just a few days earlier, D12 had recorded a track with Bugs, and Eminem expressed that he was very talented and was coming into his prime. Just before Eminem was set to go on his very first official tour, on the 14th of June 1999, Eminem and Kim got married, with only three guests attending their wedding. Unfortunately, marriage wouldn't change things in their already hostile relationship, but for Eminem, Kim was all he knew, so he tried to make it work for her and Haley's sake. Kim was allegedly the one that pushed for the pair to get married, with Eminem having cold feet at times. According to Kim, she pressured the marriage to happen as she was worried about him going on tour and being unfaithful. This, however, wouldn't change things. While Kim also had concerns of his ego blowing up with fame and while on tour, and hoped to keep him grounded. In order to promote the Slim Shady LP, Eminem went on tour for the very first time, joining the Vans Warp Tour from June 25th to July 31st, 1999, as a last-minute replacement for Cypress Hill. Eminem was flat out and performed 31 shows in a short period across North America and would sometimes perform as many as two shows in one day. During the tour, Eminem began to drink quite heavily due to the busy schedule and even had a bad fall off stage in Hartford, Connecticut 
after slipping on a puddle of unknown liquid on stage and falling around 10 feet to the floor where he cracked around several ribs. He knew after this that he needed to slow down on the drinking. Just the next day, after getting some medical attention, he was on the road again, travelling to New York to perform on MTV's Total Request live show. Eminem would crowd surf at times, but put an end to this when he emerged with no clothes on and cuts and scratches all over his body from crazed fans. Eminem's ego at this time began to get out of control, with him often mouthing off and becoming quite cocky. Something that ultimately came between Kim and Eminem all the time. This cocky and egotistical behaviour was clear to see in his interviews where he was easily provoked at the time and angry as he was often high on drugs. In the intermissions during live shows, Eminem would pop all sorts of pills to cure his cravings and to keep himself from going off the rails. It was on this tour that Eminem was unfaithful to Kim, stirring up more problems between the two, as Eminem had now confirmed two of Kim's biggest fears. Kim was devastated and furious, despite being unfaithful herself in the past, and Kim believes that Eminem would come home from the Vans Warp tour, bragging about all the girls that wanted him, and that he attempted to rub his newfound fame in everyone's faces. Kim was still working at the time that he went on tour, just in case she needed a backup plan and he left her, and she described the feeling of having a superstar husband as feeling like she was in a completely different world. On March 28th, 2000, Dr. Dre released a single off of his own successful album, The Chronic 2001, which featured Eminem in a song titled Forget About Dre. Eminem had a hand in co-writing four tracks on the album, including Forgot About Dre, which was a top 10 hit in the UK and featured Eminem utilising his Slim Shady character as the theme circulates around Dre's comeback, his response to all the haters and doubters and a response to his rivalry with Suge Knight. Dr. Dre believes that Eminem actually came up with a majority of the lyrics and that Dre just laid down the beat for the track. Forgot About Dre won the duo a Grammy for the Best Rap Performance by a Duo or Group in 2001 and Best Rap Video at the MTV Music Video Awards in 2000. Another track on the album titled The Watcher was also co-wrote by Eminem and explores Easy es death as well as a look back at Dre's career and his comeback. In early 2000, Eminem's mother Debbie Mavers did the unexpected and recorded a three-track album called Set the Record Straight with a rap duo called IDX. Debbie Mavers provided both the lyrics and her own spoken word vocals in one of the tracks called Dear Marshall and in the song Set the Record Straight, IDX took to the mix as they teamed up to attempt to tell Debbie's side of the story in retaliation to Eminem's songs about her, such as My Name Is and others from the Slim Shady LP, while almost mimicking the track Role Model in the song Set the Record Straight. In these tracks, Debbie attempted to justify her actions as a single mother while raising Eminem and questioned why he had become such an angry and resentful young man, despite Debbie believing that she loved him unconditionally. Debbie expressed at the time that she couldn't even go to the mall in peace without getting strange stares or comments from strangers due to Marshall's songs about her, and that she lives in constant fear. 
with Debbie claiming that she released this album in hopes that it would reach him, as Eminem wasn't speaking to her at the time. Debbie wouldn't be the only one to attempt to cash in, with Eminem's grandmother Betty writing a tell-all book. She wouldn't be the last, as Eminem's former bodyguard, Byron Williams, and a so-called close friend of Eminem's from school, named Jenny Watkins, also released books, attempting to expose outlandish claims about Eminem and Kim, but were met with mostly negative critical reviews. Eminem would declare a few years later that the only ones that have a right to write about him or actually know him are his grandmother Betty, Uncle Jack, D12 and Haley. On the 15th of April 2000, Eminem released his first single titled The Real Slim Shady from his upcoming third studio album, The Marshall Mathers LP. Originally, the track wasn't going to be included on the album as this was Eminem's way of introducing himself as Marshall Mathers rather than the Slim Shady character, but Dr. Dre encouraged him to include it as an introduction similar to My Name Is on the Slim Shady LP. The song is best known for the iconic line, Will the Real Slim Shady Please Stand Up? As Slim Shady is unleashed once again, taking aim at the phony manufactured pop tunes on the radio and a range of pop culture figures of the time, such as Pamela Anderson and her allegedly abusive relationship with Tommy Lee, Slim Shady criticises the censorship over his controversial work, yet the comedian Tom Green literally humped a dead moose on TV. He attacks Will Smith for his clean lyrics and polished pop tunes, despite calling himself a hip-hop artist. He makes fun of Britney Spears and boy bands such as NSYNC, expressing his frustration over their annoying type of music, and claims that Christina Aguilera performed oral sex on Fred Durst of Limp Bizkit and television host Carson Daly. These claims would land Eminem in hot water, with Christina Aguilera replying with, Disgusting, offensive, and above all, not true. Eminem made the dig at Christina in the song for allegedly leaking to MTV that he had gotten married to Kim, but the pair patched things up later in 2002. The track was very popular around the world as it charted at number one in four countries, including the UK, and finished inside the top 10 in 16 countries, including the US, and at number 11 in Australia. Eminem would reveal much later in his career that when he dissed celebrities, it wasn't always aimed at anyone in particular, but if your name rhymed with something that was shocking, then it was going to go into the song. The music video itself proved to be a vital promotional tool, with Eminem's sarcastic and dark comical style being heavily portrayed in the music video. Where he even dressed as Britney Spears, a superhero, a mental patient, as part of NSYNC, and he was often accompanied by a large number of replica Slim Shady lookalikes and his trusty pals from D12. On the 23rd of May 2000, the Marshall Mathers LP was released and became a smash hit album, charting in the top position around the world in 12 countries, including Australia, the US, and the UK and was a huge hit around Europe. The Marshall Mathers LP went on to be his best-selling album of his career, and in just its first week, it sold 1.7 million copies, making it one of the fastest-selling albums in the United States, beating Snoop Dogg's 1993 record for fastest-selling hip-hop album with Doggy Style, 
and Britney Spears' record for fastest-selling solo album for 1999's Baby One More Time, with a staggering 23 million copies being sold around the world, where it went diamond in the US, with as many as 11 million copies flying off the shelves there. Produced alongside Dr. Dre, the pair would prove to be a winning formula once again, and controversy surrounding the album was at an all-time high, due to the lyrics in his songs and his music videos, drawing slews of protesters out to march in the streets to censor his work as they deemed it to be poisoning their children's minds and they believed that it was glorifying sex, violence and misogynist and homophobic views despite having a clear explicit content warning on the cover of every album. Despite all the backlash, it really only contributed to Eminem becoming one of the biggest and most commercially successful hip-hop artists on the scene at the time, and helped him to forge his own identity into pop culture. Eminem fans, however, took the fight back to the protesters, demanding free speech, and Eminem mentioned once again that if you don't want your kids listening, then don't let them buy it in the first place. The media backlash and protesters did come with a downside, however, as Eminem grew tired of receiving the same questions regarding the themes in his lyrics and began lashing out in retaliation. In the most recent edition of the Rolling Stone magazine's top 500 albums of all time, the Marshall Mavers LP ranks at number 145 and is often referred to as Eminem's greatest album of his career. It would go on to win a Grammy for Best Rap Album, making it the second year in a row that Eminem had won in this category after the Slim Shady LP also won. This made Eminem the first to ever win back-to-back Grammys for Best Rap Album. With the Marshall Mavers LP, Eminem said that he wanted to show the people that he was just like them and that he never knew that he would get this big, while also stating that his goal was to keep hip-hop expanding and keep its legacy going. Soon enough, men wanted to be Eminem and women wanted to be with him, with his blue eyes and bad boy persona drawing them in. As Eminem's new album did the rounds, he went on tour alongside his good friend Proof and D12, Snoop Dogg, Ice Cube, Dr. Dre, and a load of other acts such as Exhibit, Corrupt, and Nate Dogg for the Up in Smoke tour, where they all performed around 44 shows across the US and Canada from the 15th of June to the 20th of August 2000. Eminem was also set to go on the Family Values Tour alongside Limp Biscuit, but had to pull out of the event that was run by the members of Korn. If you look closely at Korn's video for Got The Life, Eminem was actually an extra in the crowd for the video in 1998, where he had also handed them a copy of the Slim Shady EP during filming for the video. The time on tour would prove to be a hectic and hard time for Eminem, as he faced many personal and relationship battles. On June 4th, 2000, the story goes that Eminem was hanging out with his close friend, Gary Kozlowski, at his house, when he got word that Kim was seen being flirtatious and unfaithful with another man at a local club downtown. Eminem and Gary then ventured to the local suburban nightclub and cafe called The Hot Rock in Warren, Michigan. When Eminem arrived, he and Gary sat watching Kim as they then witnessed her kissing the club bouncer named John Guerrera 
as Eminem decided to draw his unloaded 9mm pistol. Eminem was in an emotional fit of rage after seeing this and jumped out of the car to confront Guerrera. That's when a scuffle broke out and things escalated as Eminem pistol whipped Guerrera in the face, slapping the gun into Guerrera's lips that he had just used to kiss his wife before pointing the unloaded pistol at Guerrera as a threat. Eminem then had his pistol dislodged from his grasp as it fell to the ground. Eminem and Guerrera continued to brawl as the other nightclub bouncers were quick to react and immediately notified police. When the police arrived, Eminem and four other men, including his friend Gary, were all arrested. Guerrera filed for an emotional distress lawsuit against Eminem just four days after the incident, with Eminem facing up to nine years in prison. Eminem's career was almost over before it really even began, but with a good lawyer in Peter Peacock, he would be able to get off lightly and was extremely lucky to receive zero jail time. That very same weekend, Eminem was charged once again as he went on a rage-filled outburst attending a recording studio in Royal Oak, Michigan, where members of the Insane Clown Posse were. This time, Eminem allegedly pulled his unloaded 9mm pistol on their road manager Douglas Dale after having a heated argument with him. This would land Eminem in court for two similar incidents in the same month. The incident with Guerrera and Kim was settled almost two years later, with Guerrera being paid out $100,000 by Eminem after it dragged on for a while. Guerrera was quoted as saying, Kim and I were embracing, she gave me a kiss. The next thing I hear is, gun, gun, gun. I truly believe he was going to kill me. He was in such a rage. Eminem's antics not only set him back $100,000, but he also received two years probation and was required to attend counselling and anger management classes after pleading guilty of criminal charges of carrying a concealed weapon and assault with a dangerous weapon, which was actually dropped. Kim would also be charged for disturbing the peace for basically creating a hostile scene. Kim was furious over this and over Eminem's claims of her infidelity, stating, I don't think anybody in their right mind would cheat on a millionaire husband, especially with a nobody at a neighbourhood bar. The fact that he has just jumped to conclusions has gotten him and myself in trouble. Eminem made little to no comment on the matter, as Eminem told Kim that he wanted a divorce and the two would split up once again. The incident with the insane clown posse road manager, Douglas Dale, was also settled in court, with Eminem facing up to five years in jail for having a concealed weapon and a misdemeanor charge of brandishing a firearm in public. But due to having a handy lawyer, he was given one year probation by pleading no contest, once again getting off lightly. He was, however, required to do community service and give back to the youth in the Detroit community. Judge Langford Morris referred to one of Eminem's own lines from The Real Slim Shady, stating, Don't misstep, don't fall down. Now it's time for you to please stand up. You were extremely lucky, sir, that no one was injured or killed. 
Eminem's probation in total now added up to three years and was supposed to place restrictions on his use of drugs, alcohol, out-of-state travel and violent behaviour. But not all of this was exactly monitored and to be honest, he was let off lightly being a star of the music industry. We interrupt our program to bring you this important message. Hi everyone and sorry to interrupt. I hope you're enjoying this episode, but I just wanted to take this opportunity to tell you four ways on how you can support the podcast and play your part in keeping it going so I can continue to bring you more great episodes. If you enjoy Lyrics of Their Life podcast, first of all, it would be greatly appreciated if you could subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. It's totally free to do. It just means that you will receive a notification when a new episode of the podcast becomes available. Secondly, you can leave the podcast a positive five-star review on iTunes as this helps the podcast reach a larger audience. Third of all, you can tell your friends all about the podcast or join us on our social media pages at Facebook, Instagram, TikTok and Twitter. While finally, you can take your support one step further and head to our Patreon page and pledge your support to one of two of our plans for just $1 or $5 per month with no locking contract. Or you can pledge just a one-off payment for all the hard work that goes into creating the podcast. And you will receive a number of extra benefits to go with your donation. Or you can even buy me a beer for $5 at buymeacoffee.com forward slash lyrics of life pod. I am a totally independent podcast creator, meaning there are no large networks or businesses financially supporting my work. So your support would be greatly appreciated as it means I can continue creating more content such as biographies, the weekly muse, interviews and more as it takes a lot of time, resources and research to prepare and upload just one single episode. Links to Patreon and Buy Me A Coffee can be found in the show notes on our website at lyricsoftheirlife.com or on our Facebook page. Once again, I appreciate every one of my listeners for their support, no matter the form it comes in. Thanks for listening. Now let's get back to the episode. While all of this was unfolding and Eminem was on tour, a shocking tragedy would occur when Eminem's soon-to-be ex-wife, Kim Mathers, attempted to take her own life on the 10th of July, 2000. Kim was extremely unhappy at this time as she was upset about what had recently went down with court and after she had attempted her own life and her recent unfaithfulness, Eminem would file for divorce, which would be settled at a later date. Things started to escalate further into a war between Kim and Eminem when Kim would attempt to sue Eminem for $10 million in damages and emotional distress over the song Kim from the Marshall Mathers LP for referencing her and painting her in a negative light. Kim also attempted to seek that Eminem would no longer be able to reference her by her name in songs. The court case would be settled privately, however, with Eminem being allowed to continue writing songs about her in the form of artistic expression. In a shock move, Eminem withdrew his divorce application with the two deciding to stay together for Haley. This once again would change, however, with Kim this time around filing for divorce, with the settlement occurring the following year in 2001. Much later, in early 2007, Kim spoke out about her suicide attempt and what her side of the story was on Season 2 of the Dr. Keith Ablo show. 
On the show, Kim spoke highly about Eminem as a father, showing that she still respected him as a dad, just not as a husband. Kim revealed that she loved him in the beginning, that they were always able to talk about anything and were quite open and honest with each other until the lies and unfaithfulness started to creep in. When Dr. Keith questioned her about what Eminem was like as a father, Kim was quoted as saying, He's an excellent father. He loves the kids very much. Whenever there's anything, a field trip or anything to do with the school or any activities she's involved in, he's always right there. If she's upset about anything or needs to talk or just needs to be comforted, he's always lending a helping hand, you know. He asks her how she's feeling and how was your day. But when Dr. Keith questioned Kim on her relationship with Eminem, she said, quote, It just seems like ever since he got famous, our relationship went downhill from there. He became arrogant, cocky, everything he did for me or the kids, he has to be praised for. He's so used to getting so much attention and people praising him for his work that he expects that when he comes home and it's not the same. I don't look at him like that. I'm not putting you up on a pedestal. You're not that person to me and that's what he wants all the time and it didn't work out. In quite an emotional statement, Kim also spoke about what it was like being a mother with children home alone while Eminem was on tour and the positives and negatives that came with his success where she said, quote, Money's great, yeah. Whatever the kids want, they can have. But it doesn't make your husband stay at home with you or sleep in the same bed with you. When your husband is famous and always gone and not there, you're basically there alone anyways. Money doesn't put somebody in bed next to me to hold on to at night. The tell-all interview also revealed how their marriage broke down, with Kim revealing she had low self-esteem, little self-respect, and that the loneliness led to her having affairs as she sought the love and attention from other men as she wasn't getting any from Eminem. But in her opinion, it was also to get back at Eminem for allegedly being unfaithful while on tour. Another thing that was a big issue for Kim in their relationship was that she just couldn't understand why Eminem would write so many horrible songs about her as the mother of his own child and go and put it on an album for the whole world to hear when she herself didn't have the same platform as Eminem to badmouth him and for his sake kept all of his flaws hidden until the Dr. Keefe interview in 2007. The Dr. Keefe interview continued to retrieve some interesting answers when Kim was asked about the night she attempted to take her own life on a Friday, July 10th, 2000 and the impact that the song Kim had on Kim herself. To understand the extent of the damage caused by the song Kim on the Marshall Mathers LP, we first need to take a look at the track. When the song Kim was released on the Marshall Mathers LP, it was yet another big blow for Kim Mathers, who was upset that the man she loved and married would write such a horrible song about her and include it on an album for the whole world to hear, especially when she was still the mother of his child. To be fair, the criticism and backlash that Eminem received for this track was well deserved, was bound to happen and hard to argue against when writing lyrics that were so hateful, aggressive and degrading, some so horrible that I won't even be able to quote them on this episode. But feel free to look them up for yourself if you wish. With much of the song dealing with Eminem's jealousy and anger over Kim cheating on him, despite being somewhat hypocritical as he himself had been unfaithful in the past. 
Despite what some may think of Kim, and the fact that she had been nasty to Eminem herself in the past, this went to a whole new level. But as shocking as the lyrics were, it added to the controversy and intrigue surrounding Eminem through the media and the critics about who Eminem was, and sure enough made him a household name, renowned for stirring the pot and for his crazy over-the-top lyrics that almost always go too far. The song Kim draws similarities to a later hit song by Eminem titled Stan, and is known as the prequel of 97 Bonnie and Clyde, with the story being filled in to why Eminem killed Kim and dumped her in the lake, as he was sick of her never listening and is furious over her cheating on him, all while telling Haley he's proud of her and that she's daddy's girl. Eminem also makes a reference to the time he cheated on her when they were younger, and now that it's coming back to haunt him, he expresses that he is very confused, upset, deranged, and afraid to lose Kim to another man, despite both loving and hating her at the same time. So he feels like he has no choice but to kill her in the end, by yelling some horrible lines that read, Bleed, bitch. Eminem tells the dark tale through his alter ego Slim Shady once again, as if he is just finding out about her being with another man, before taking off with Kim in the trunk of the car to kill her, leaving Haley asleep at their house. The song is very disturbing and hard to listen to from start to finish, with Eminem imitating Kim's voice and vocalising him killing Kim, and then dragging her body along the ground at the end and putting her in the trunk. The fact that Eminem chose to use Kim and Haley's names made it even more impactful and disturbing, and perhaps is one of the most messed up songs that Eminem has ever recorded. If he had have omitted their real names, it would have taken that personal aspect of the song out of it, and perhaps made it more of a horror-type film played out in a song. But of course Eminem was looking to get a reaction. Which makes me wonder, is it really worth it when it comes to his own private life and his family? He often defended his most disturbing songs, such as this one, by saying that they weren't meant to be taken so seriously, as if they were a rap fantasy, and that he is just expressing what many people have thought about doing to their exes, but he's just not actually acting them out. Eminem said that when he wrote a lot of this album, especially this song, that he was off his face on ecstasy, which he said often sent him bonkers and made him want to kill people. Eminem stated that Kim was the first song that he wrote for the Marshall Mavers LP, and when speaking about how he came up with the idea to write the song, he revealed in his book Angry Blonde, quote, I wrote the song when Kim and I weren't together. We were broken up at the time. This was at the end of 98. I remember I was watching a movie one day that inspired me to write a love song, but I didn't want to make it a corny love song. It had to be some bugged out shit. Though I don't remember what movie it was, I do remember feeling the frustration of us breaking up and having a daughter all in the mix. I really wanted to pour my heart out, but yet I wanted to scream. Eminem allegedly played the song for Kim, which he believes at first she was fine with, as he was quoted as saying, I remember my dumbass saying, I know this is a fucked up song, but it shows how much I care about you, to even put you in a song like this. This track, however, would of course come back to bite Eminem, and especially Kim, later on. The track Kim was replaced by a song called Kids for the clean edit of the album, as it was so full on, and it just couldn't be cleaned up. 
Kim was extremely embarrassed and humiliated by the song, revealing to Dr. Keith that she cried over it and tried with all her might to ensure her kids would never hear the song for as long as she could. Kim worried what they would think of her if they heard it and feared them going to school and being bullied about the song and their mother. When opening up to Dr. Keith about the night she attempted to take her own life, she says that very same night on a Friday, July 10th, 2000, she attended Eminem's show in Auburn Hills in Detroit, Michigan, with family and friends. After Eminem invited her along to be in the crowd and promised her he wouldn't perform the track Kim out of respect for her. While some fans of Eminem say the song Kim wasn't even performed that night, Kim believes that it was and that he went against his word. The pair were on a complicated break at the time with their relationship on the rocks. While on stage, Eminem brought out a blow-up doll resembling Kim and began performing lewd acts on it, such as strangling it and verbally rapping in a violent aggressive tone towards it before kicking it and tossing it into the crowd to be destroyed. Kim remembers watching Eminem's fans cheering, laughing and singing along to the lyrics and calling out horrible things without even knowing that Kim was standing amongst them. Embarrassed and upset, Kim left before the show was finished and attempted to drive home. With tears streaming down her face, making it hard to see the road, she became involved in a small traffic accident before finally arriving at their marital home in Sterling Heights, Detroit, Michigan. As at this stage, they were still sorting through their divorce and living arrangements. When Kim arrived, she headed straight to the bathroom, grabbed some razors and began slitting her own wrists. Kim didn't remember what happened next as she passed out and woke up alive in hospital. Kim's mother Kathleen was present at the house that night as she was babysitting Haley and Haley's cousin Elena, who were both asleep in bed. Unfortunately for Kim's mother Kathleen, she witnessed Kim attempting to take her own life as Kim's mother called for 911 at around 11.30pm that evening as she found Kim slashing her wrists and bleeding profusely. Kathleen was screaming on the phone to 911 as she attempted to save her daughter and tried to tell her to stop cutting before she passed out. Luckily, the emergency services arrived on time to save her life. With police officers also on the scene, Kim heartbreakingly told them, quote, There's got to be a better place than this. When Eminem found out what she had done with the kids in the house, he was adamant that this divorce was going ahead. Kim and Eminem just weren't good together and the relationship had become so toxic to the point of being deadly. It was, however, undoubtedly a low moment from Eminem who swore not to perform that song and he broke that promise. He had a platform, and no matter how bitter he was about Kim cheating or their relationship troubles, he most definitely didn't weigh up the consequences of his actions. Eminem perhaps learnt from this, however, as he never portrayed Kim in such an extreme and hateful light again in a song. But at this stage, it was too late, and it all went too far. Eminem dehumanised Kim and turned the mother of his beloved child into a character that fans found evil instead of a person with feelings and a heartbeat. With all of this unfolding, Kim was released from hospital, receiving over 300 stitches to her wrists and she was admitted to a rehab clinic. Eminem was awarded custody of Haley and still took her for visits to see her mother despite what had happened. 
Kim said that she was grateful that Eminem was there to look after the kids, with Haley's cousin Elena also moving in with them pretty soon. It was around this time that Eminem started caring more and more for Elena, as her own mother Dawn was often not fit to take care of her. In August 2000, due to everything that had transpired at their home in Sterling Heights, Michigan, Eminem decided to move out with Haley and purchased a new secure home with high-tech security fences in the Clinton Township of Macomb County, Michigan, for just under $1.5 million and gave Kim a payout to buy a home of her own once she exited rehab. While Eminem wanted to leave behind Kim's suicide attempt in their Sterling Heights home, it was actually more to do with trespassers and fanatical fans constantly interfering with their property. Eminem revealed that he was constantly pestered by crazed fans as the Sterling Heights property had no fence and people could just walk right up to the front door. He wanted to have a fence installed for privacy and safety concerns, but the local council rejected this. The house was located across the road from a trailer park and Eminem would literally have fans knock on his door asking for photos or autographs. Eminem wasn't particularly a fan of doing autographs or photos as he hated being swarmed by fans and felt anxious when they adored him. While he also said that it became overwhelming and strange when fans would start clapping every time he walked out of his house. He said it got concerning and too much when his daughter Haley was in the house and the fans would relentlessly knock to the point that it would wake Haley up from her nap. Eminem eventually got to a point where he would pretend to hide in the house like he wasn't there, becoming afraid to leave or answer the door or simply live in his own house. For Eminem, it was a usual occurrence to come home to find police waiting out the front door to report that some local kids from across the road at the trailer park were trying to break in and on one occasion, Eminem returned home to find a group of fans swimming in their pool in their backyard. Eminem eventually got to the point where he started answering the door to door knockers holding his 9mm pistol to scare them off. With the door knockers and the break-ins continuing, they decided the only possible thing to do would be to move somewhere with a large secure fence. Eminem would write a song back in 2000 titled Don't Approach Me with Exhibit about this specific time, which can be found on Exhibit's album Restless, where Eminem even references the council rejecting their suggestion to put up a secure fence at the property. Eminem's new home at the Clinton Mansion would instead go from one extreme to another, and included 21 rooms, a golf course, tennis court, a lake with a dock, and as a bit of a car enthusiast, Eminem had a five-car garage that held his car collection that he amassed over the years, including a Lamborghini, Aston Martin, McLaren, Ford GT, Porsche, and a Ferrari. Eminem at this time was accused by some of his friends and critics of rejecting those who put him there and being a sellout for leaving the Detroit area and moving to other parts of Michigan, which was also backed by his uncle Todd, who claimed he had forgotten where he came from, but others claim he still managed to put Detroit back on the musical map and still continued to film his music videos in the area. Unlike Uncle Todd, his Gilbert Lodge work colleagues claimed that he didn't forget them and occasionally he would drop in. 
A few years later, in 2003, Eminem would purchase a second mansion in the Rochester Hills worth close to $4.8 million, purchasing the mansion from the former CEO of Kmart, but he would barely reside in it, choosing to stay in the Clinton mansion most of all. Eminem would own and reside in these two homes for much of his career. In an interview with Rolling Stone magazine in 2002, Eminem spoke about the prospect of him and Kim ever getting back together, with Eminem replying, quote, I would rather have a baby through my penis than get married again. With the housing fiasco settling down, Eminem got back to work and started focusing on promoting his latest single from the Marshall Mavis LP. On September 7th, 2000, Eminem released the track The Way I Am to the world. The Way I Am had a much more serious, emotional, darker and aggressive style compared to the likes of the real Slim Shady. The beat itself was created by Eminem, who was taught by Dr. Dre and explores all the people in his life that he felt were putting weight on his shoulders and that it's basically driving him over the edge and that at times he's ready to throw it all away to have some sort of normalcy in his life. These people weighing him down include his record executives, the media, protesters and the -the over-the-top fans who have become too much for him to handle as he attempts to adapt to a life of fame as he raps the line, but at least have the decency in you to leave me alone when you freaks see me out in the streets when I'm eating or feeding my daughter to not come and speak to me. I don't know you and no, I don't owe you a motherfucking thing. I'm not Mr. Sync. I'm not what your friends think. I'm not Mr. Friendly. I can be a prick if you tempt me. My tank is on empty. No patience is in me. And if you offend me, I'm lifting you ten feet in the air. I don't care who was there and who saw me just jaw you. Go call your lawyer. File you a lawsuit. I'll smile in the courtroom and buy you a wardrobe. I'm tired of all of you. I don't mean to be mean, but that's all I can be. It's just me. Eminem goes on to explain that he is thankful for his fans, but believes there needs to be a line drawn in the sand, as he has even been followed into bathrooms, with fans waiting outside the cubicle. Around this time, as mentioned earlier, Eminem had been getting chastised at his home, quite severely by his fans, who had been knocking on his door constantly, and breaking into his backyard. This of course is a reference to this, as well as the fans swarming him, which created great anxiety for Eminem. The music video sees Eminem with his friend and fellow musician Marilyn Manson, before diving off the edge of a multiple story building, suggesting that the pressure is all becoming too much for Eminem to handle. The clip also sees actors playing the role of Haley and Kim, which was an early indication that he was prepared to make their lives very public and to express their lives in his music, yet he was frustrated that this led to fans thinking that they knew more about him and his family than they really did and would basically stalk him, his wife and his daughter. In the end of the video, Eminem hits the pavement only to find it's a soft landing and he survives to fight another day. The Way I Am managed to make it to the top 10 in around 5 countries, including the UK, but struggled in the US and Australia, despite being quite a solid track. In July 2000, Eminem became the very first white artist to feature on the front cover of hip-hop magazine The Source. From the 19th of October to the 21st of November 2000, 
Eminem embarked on the very first anger management tour, travelling across Canada and the US for around 19 shows, alongside other hip-hop artists and bands, such as Limp Bizkit, Papa Roach and Exhibit. Eminem would find it hard adjusting to life on the road, however, and would often find himself flying home to Michigan to see his daughter Haley, as he hated being away from her. Despite appearing to love the controversy he was creating, with his outrageous Slim Shady gimmick, at times it all became too much for Eminem, as he began taking a range of substances, such as Vicodin, Valium and Ambium, to help him get through shows and to sleep afterwards, which in return led to a bad addiction to the drugs. Eminem would later explain that for most of the time, while addicted to prescription medications, it was like a blur and it was during this time that he struggled to mingle with his fans after shows and often came across as rude or arrogant. Eminem also became extremely hard to work for and often would lash out at others in fits of rage and anger, hurling abuse at those who cared for him and loved him the most. Sometimes while performing, he was that wasted that he had to have proof fill in the lines for him or Eminem would simply slur his words. Fame just didn't agree with Eminem and neither did the drugs, but the fame train had already left the station and there was no turning back now. During the early 2000s, Eminem engaged in some of his wildest party days, filled with drugs and alcohol, leading to a number of flings with celebrities, and even claiming to have a brief fling with Mariah Carey, only for Mariah to strongly deny these rumours. Eminem often got aggressive while on drugs, and was hard to be around, often locking himself in a room, as he would easily lose his temper. Despite all of the drama and drugs, he still managed to be there for Haley, keeping the drugs and the party life as separate as possible, and maintained that he would be the father that he never had. At times, Eminem would even take Haley on tour with him, but this wasn't always the best place for her to be, so it couldn't happen all the time. Although Eminem struggled to juggle fame and family, he always attempted to alter his schedule to fit Haley in. Eminem finished this leg of the tour just in time to promote his latest single titled Stan, featuring Dido. Stan would become one of Eminem's most critically acclaimed pieces of work in his career and brought him a lot of respect in the industry, with some even referring to him as the Bob Dylan of hip-hop due to his lyrical and storytelling ability. Stan is a fictional tale that Eminem wrote about a crazed and obsessed fan named Stanley Stan Mitchell, who writes a letter to Eminem's crazy alter ego Slim Shady. In the song, Stan expresses his love for Slim Shady, going as far as having his name tattooed on him, dressing and dyeing his hair like Eminem, having his basement wall littered with pictures of Slim Shady as a shrine, and saying they should be together, despite having a girlfriend and a baby on the way. When Stan grows frustrated at Eminem's rejection for not replying to his letters or paying him attention at live gigs, with his disappointed little brother Matthew also by his side, Stan takes this very personally. The infatuation festers and turns into revenge, as Stan busts his girlfriend, prying into his Slim Shady collection, and stuffs her into the car boot, gagged and bound, and drives around 90 on the highway after drinking a fifth of vodka and taking a heap of downers, before slamming over a bridge barricade and into the river below, 
killing himself and his pregnant girlfriend in the meantime, as a copycat reenactment of 97 Bonnie and Clyde. By the time Eminem actually sits down to reply to Stan's letters, it's all too late, as he recalls seeing a news report on TV on a similar occurrence, only to realise it was that exact incident involving Stan. While the story was fictional, it did explore the dark reality some Lengths fans would go to, which was in a way similar to what Eminem had experienced himself in relation to the Way I Am song, having people stalking him and his family's every move, and seeing his fans dress like him, including his little brother Nate, as Eminem simply didn't get why people wanted to be or dress like him. Eminem's ability to write a song and rap from a range of perspectives, including himself and Stan, capture the thoughts of a fanatical and deranged fan perfectly and tell the story in such a clear and haunting detail, and it was simply astonishing. And still to this day, it holds up as one of the greatest story-based songs of all time. Despite being a massive hit and being nominated for numerous awards, it was surprisingly not deemed a winner. However, it sold over 5 million copies worldwide and was a number one hit in 13 countries, including Australia and the UK. Despite selling well in the US, the track didn't do so well chart-wise, however, and was heavily censored due to some believing it was encouraging that sort of behaviour, with fears that some may copy the tale. One part in particular censors Dido in the back of the car, attempting to scream while she was gagged. Also censored was Stan's alternative methods of murdering her. Dido was actually gagged for the recording of the track, and she even played the role of the pregnant girlfriend in the music video. The music video for Stan gave us an insight into the dark, tortured mind of Stan, and gave a perfect insight into what his situation was like. The song and video, as a whole, was simply a masterpiece, with Dido's beautiful but haunting vocals from her own original track titled Thank You, adding to the eeriness of the song. Dido would later accompany Eminem on tour for cameo appearances to perform the song live, and on Saturday Night Live, they even made an appearance together. Once again, however, there was controversy around the song, with the Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation Organization, or known as GLAAD, taking offence to Eminem's line that referenced Stan saying to Slim Shady, we could have been together. As mentioned previously, Eminem stated that where he grew up in Detroit, the words gay and faggot were thrown around on the daily and it was just their way of speaking to one another, and to them, it wasn't necessarily aimed at homosexuals. The rumours suggesting that Eminem was homophobic were all quashed, however, when Sir Elton John took to the stage alongside Eminem at the Grammys on February 21st, 2001. Glad members had been protesting before the Grammys got underway outside the Staples Centre where they attempted to cancel Eminem's performance. Elton John would sing Dido's part at the Grammys and the pair stole the show and to this day it is considered one of the all-time best Grammy performances. At the end of the performance, Eminem and Elton hugged and Elton spoke out in support of Eminem by saying that he is far from homophobic. The pair would remain close friends ever since, with Eminem stating that, quote, Of course I'd heard of Elton John, but I didn't know he was gay. 
I didn't know anything about his personal life. I didn't really care. But being that he was gay, and he had my back, I think it made a statement in itself, saying that he understood where I was coming from. Elton John even came under pressure by the Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation Organisation for teaming up with Eminem, but he personally didn't take offence to Eminem's lyrics and said he completely understood where he was coming from. Eminem often believed that because he was a white rapper that he was being targeted for his so-called homophobic views when African-American rappers had been doing the same for years and it often went unnoticed. Whether or not Eminem was intentionally expressing his true feelings towards homosexuals, he continued to deny he had a problem with them, and the line wasn't really that bad anyway. Coincidentally enough, Dido went on to have her first child in 2011 that she named Stanley, but said she had always liked the name and that it wasn't related to the character from Stan, but she doesn't mind people connecting the two anyway, as she enjoyed her time collaborating with Eminem. Originally, there was a slightly different third verse that had been recorded, but this was accidentally deleted by Eminem's sound engineer, who was said to be stoned at the time. Eminem believes this original verse was one of his best, but there was no going back. Eminem revealed much later in 2011 that there was a planned extended version where Eminem was quoted as saying, There was a verse where Stan got out of the water. He escaped and came to my house to kill me. Then I had to kill him first, but I missed him, and he was in the hospital for like three weeks. Then he was pissed off that I didn't write him get well cards. So he came to kill me again, and in the last verse, finally I just blew his head off. Eminem would also state that there was some truth to himself having a bit of arrogance when it comes to signing autographs and meeting fans like the character Stan suggests in the song. Eminem stated that he couldn't always sign all autographs as it was nearly impossible and there would always be someone that would miss out and be unhappy with him. The rest of the Marshall Mathers LP was incredibly raw and controversial material just like the song Kim. Despite being in the spotlight, both Eminem and Dr. Dre refused responsibility over their lyrics stating they're here just for the music and to entertain, not there to be your parent. In the opening track to the album, titled Kill You, Eminem opens the album with an aggressive tirade against anyone who plans on getting in his way, including any women, as he raps the song, utilising his crazy Slim Shady persona. While Eminem didn't want the song to be taken too literally, it brought about a lot of controversy, especially with women's rights activists. Eminem was quoted as saying, I wanted to start the album with that song because everybody in the press was like, what's he gonna rap about? He's not miserable anymore. The whole idea of this song was to say some of the most fucked up shit, just to let people know that I'm back, that I didn't lose it, that I wasn't compromising nothing, and I didn't change. If anything, I got worse. The song was also said to be referring to Debbie and the way she raised him and how she told Eminem that his father didn't love him, which was evident in the opening line, but also referred to his relationship with Kim. While the themes in the album were exaggerated, as mentioned earlier, Eminem had expressed at times that Kim pushed him to feel like he wanted to kill her. While this was his way of venting and having others side with his experiences, 
Kim was often painted in a very bad light, and very rarely in a positive way, and he had a platform to form her into the perfect villain, using his slim shady alter ego as the scapegoat for his darker thoughts and twisted sense of humour, almost using this as an excuse for his more twisted thoughts. Member of the Senate, Lynn Cheney, in the US, felt that Eminem's hateful music was a result of America's youth violence problem, linking his music to influencing the Columbine Massacre as she attempted to have bans placed on him and Marilyn Manson. While Canadian politician Jim Flaherty wanted to have Eminem blocked at the country's border from entering and performing in Toronto. The Marshall Mavers LP was up for four Grammys in 2001, including Album of the Year, which was when the protests and controversy was at its peak, with many questioning how such hateful lyrics earned him those nominations. In the track Who Knew, Eminem takes a satirical approach against claims his music influences his young listeners to perform criminal acts and never thinking that his career would blow up so much to have such an influence. The song titled Drug Ballad ventures into Eminem's party lifestyle that came with fame and how he began taking drugs excessively such as ecstasy, coke, prescription medications, alcohol and solvents. As he was quoted as saying, I wanted to touch on how last year I was always fucked up. Life was like a big party for me. It was the first year that I blew up and I did a lot of celebrating. In the song Amityville, Eminem claims that Detroit has a more gruesome past as he attempts to outdo the Amityville Horror Massacre. The track Under the Influence is Eminem's first official collaboration with his boys from D12 on one of his records. While in the song Bitch Please, Eminem collaborates with Snoop Dogg, Nate Dogg, Dr. Dre and Exhibit, achieving some minor success as a single from the LP. Finally, the track Marshall Mathers explores Eminem's rise from being poor to being famous through the Slim Shady LP, how all of his family came to him for handouts and claiming to be tight with him after previously doubting him, and the controversy and criticism his music has created bringing about countless lawsuits and protests. Eminem also takes a stab at the insane clown posse once again and consistently references the word faggot, calling boy bands such as NSYNC and Backstreet Boys this, and yet again the media and gay rights activists would swarm to protest over these lyrics. The album was a smash hit and was ultimately helped along rather than hindered by the media coverage and backlash due to the protesters. Eminem was now becoming a household name, and while it wasn't all for the right reasons, it would set him up for a long and interesting career. Around March 2001, Eminem and Kim settled their divorce after the rocky relationship had broken down completely. Eminem was left with their $450,000 Michigan home, while Kim was given $450,000 to purchase her own home with the pair sharing joint custody of Haley now that Kim was out of rehab. On the 8th of May 2001, the Insane Clown Posse were performing in Detroit when an Eminem fan wearing Eminem merchandise and a t-shirt appeared in the crowd waving his Eminem shirt around and taunting the duo by throwing Eminems onto stage, adding more fuel to their rivalry. Road manager William Dale then grabbed the fan choking him until he blacked out before throwing him against a wall. 
Dale later admitted that he felt like the fan deserved it, and that he denies that he passed out, and that he definitely doesn't regret it. William was the brother of Douglas Dale, the road manager mentioned earlier, who had a gun pulled on him by Eminem. William Dale was charged by the police, and the rivalry heated up when Eminem at his live gigs had two blow-up dolls resembling Insane Clown Posse perform oral manoeuvres on each other live at his gigs. Eminem then journeyed to Europe and the UK for nine shows of the Anger Management Tour alongside Exhibit and Outcast. In early June 2001, Eminem and his manager Paul Rosenberg made their second signing to Shady Records, with Eminem scouting out another Detroit rapper named Obi Trice, who had worked on D12's upcoming album with them after Bazaar of D12 introduced them. Around this time, Eminem would begin to enter the world of producing more material. He plied his trade while observing and working with Dr. Dre, and now had started creating beats of his own for other artists and himself. On the 19th of June 2001, Eminem with D12 released their debut album together in Bugs' memory, calling it Devil's Night which was said to be a tradition around the Detroit area of setting alight uninhabited buildings and houses on the night before Halloween. The album was around two years in the making, with Eminem having a hand in writing all the songs on the album, and he co-executive produced the album alongside DJ Head, Dr. Dre, Jeff Bass and Mr. Porter, and would eventually sell around 4 million copies around the world. Devil's Night charted at number one on both the US R&B chart and the Canadian and US mainstream chart and made it to the top five in 11 other countries including Australia, New Zealand and the UK. The album included cameos from Dr. Dre and Obi Trice but would also be heavily censored due to references to drugs, sex, offensive language, the Columbine Massacre and Eminem's stance against the police. Although most critics were harsh on the album, it was quite popular. D12 member Dino and Porter, aka Con Artis, was also fond of what they had created together when he stated, That album, man, when I think about it, there wasn't a lot of skippers on that album. It was really well put together. The album would be Shady Records' first success, and things were looking promising for Eminem's new label. In order to promote the album, a track titled Shit On You was released in December 2000 and charted at number 2 on the US rap chart and 10 in the UK, but it wouldn't make the same impact as their second single. The B-side to Shit On You included a diss track titled I Remember, aimed at rapper and former House of Pain member Everlast, after Everlast had been talking trash about Eminem in interviews, and Everlast claimed that Eminem had been giving him dirty looks, refused to say hi to him, and shake his hand while at a meeting at Swayantec. Everlast teamed with Dilated Peoples and recorded the track Eardrums Pop, where Everlast aimed his verse at Eminem, where he raps the line, Cock my hammer, spit a comet like Haley." I buck a 380 on ones that act shady. You might catch a beatdown out where I come from. This of course angered Eminem, and anytime anyone mentioned Haley's name, it became personal. Eminem's track I Remember was his detailing of Everlast's career, and is delivered in a much different mellow style, as Eminem calmly refers to Everlast becoming an old man that's too old to rap, 
so he instead became an average blues musician with heart problems before calling Everlast out on his lyrics from Eardrums Pop and stating that now you've said those tough words, what you gonna do about it? Eminem also refers to the time Everlast claims that Eminem gave him the cold shoulder, but Eminem recalls that he came and sat with Everlast and wanted to freestyle rap with him, but instead Everlast was the one to get up and leave, and it was almost like he was jealous that he wasn't the only white rapper around anymore. Despite Eminem's calm approach in this diss track, it displayed just how good Eminem was at his disses, without even needing to sound angry or disrespectful, by intelligently addressing the situation instead. As fans started applauding Eminem for his retaliation diss track, Everlast was performing a gig in Detroit where he started running his mouth again about D12 and Eminem and offering Eminem's followers to get on stage with him and face him. A fan of Eminem, who happened to be there that night, jumped up onto stage and questioned the Detroit audience if they were willing to let Everlast diss Eminem like this, who was also a hometown boy. This then resulted in a brawl breaking out amongst the crowd, three people were sent to hospital and Everlast himself was jumped by audience members. The feud between Everlast and Eminem continued, with Everlast recording and releasing another track called Whitey's Revenge, where he dedicated the track to Eminem's mother Debbie and took aim once again at Haley, Eminem, and this time around even Kim. Everlast claimed that Eminem was both a homosexual and that he was an ecstasy junkie, which obviously forced Eminem to retaliate. Eminem and D12 then released another track titled Quitter, where Eminem claimed that Everlast had taken it way too far by mentioning his daughter Haley yet again and including his family in his personal feud. Eminem stated if he ever mentions Haley's name again that he will kill Everlast and responded to Everlast's claims that they should make this feud a physical one instead of using words, with Eminem rapping the line. Fuck you, fat boy, drop the mic, let's fight. You said I passed you in a lobby and I glanced at you like I ain't noticed you. Bitch, I had a show to do. The track ends with the line, Fuck him, that's it, I'm done, I promise, I'm done. Despite being released as a single, Eminem said he never actually intended on releasing Quitter as he didn't want to give Everlast any more exposure and that the original version had leaked onto Napster. The whole feud had been carried out using the streaming and downloading website Napster and the tracks also leaked onto alternative radio. As Eminem was quoted as saying, I don't even want to give him any more press. I wish him the best with his career and his heart. If I put it out, I don't want to be arrested for murder because he'll have another heart attack. With Eminem of course referring to Everlast's heart problems, while Everlast also backed down from the feud and claimed that all he had to say had already been said. Limp Biscuit, who were friends of Eminem and D12, were in line to be part of the Quitter track, but Fred Durst had pulled out right before it was recorded. DJ Lethal of Limp Biscuit then stated to TRL that Everlast would beat Eminem in a fight if their feud became a physical one. This would then cause tension and a feud between Limp Biscuit and Eminem. With Eminem writing the song Girls for D12's Devil's Night album, where he takes aim at both Everlast and Limp Biscuit. The feud between Everlast and Eminem has since been ceased, with Eminem claiming they work things out. 
While Everlast said he never actually intended on bringing Haley into the feud, and that he didn't actually know her name was Haley in relation to the Haley's Comet line in Eardrums Pop, while he admits the second time around in the Whitey's Revenge song that he did reference Haley and says that now as a parent himself, he regrets referring to Haley and understands now that it was a low blow. It was the second single on the Devil's Night album, called Purple Pills, that would be the track to put D12 on the map when it was released in June 2001 with its dirty but catchy beat. The title Purple Pills obviously referred to the use of the drug ecstasy and contained many references to other recreational and prescription drug use throughout the song, such as Golden Seals, aka Hashish or Cannabis, and Mushroom Mountain, aka Magic Mushrooms. So in order to turn the track into a radio-friendly hit for a mainstream audience, they changed the title and lyric in the song to Purple Hills. Due to Bazaar's verse graphically detailing references to sex and drugs, his part was basically bleeped out all the way through. The original lyrics to the chorus read, I've been to Mushroom Mountain, changed to, I've climbed the highest mountain, and the line, I take a couple uppers, I down a couple downers, was changed to, I've been so many places, I've seen so many faces. With this alteration to the lyrics, D12 had themselves a number one hit on the US rap chart and UK R&B chart, while also reaching the top five on the mainstream charts in Australia, the UK, Switzerland and three other countries. The track was especially big in Australia and the UK at the time, and despite being heavily censored, it was a heavily requested favourite by radio listeners. On the 8th of July 2001, Kim Mathers was caught up in more drama when she was arrested around suburban Detroit in the Macomb County. Kim and an unnamed friend of hers were caught after they were riding jet skis and had broken down in the Lake St. Clair Canal only to abandon the jet skis. After someone notified authorities, they arrived and searched the area to find Kim and her friend walking down Jefferson Avenue away from the scene, and were both holding their life jackets. The officer on the scene assumed they had been drinking, but wasn't able to issue an alcohol test as he hadn't seen them driving the jet skis, as he was quoted as saying, We had no real legal means of trying to give them a sobriety or breath test because we don't have the right to do that technically. The officer then spoke to Kim and her friend and realised that they both had outstanding warrants for their arrest over a number of altercations, with Kim's being for disturbing the peace when she was busted kissing a bouncer outside Hot Rocks and Eminem showed up and retaliated, pistol whipping Guerrera. Only Kim, however, would be taken by the Macomb County Police to the local jail, only for the deputy police officer to return to the vehicle to find a white powdery substance consistent with cocaine in the back seat where Kim had been sitting. Kim was released from Macomb County Jail on the very same day after posting her $3,000 bail for disturbing the peace but testing would be underway to determine if the substance found in the car was actually cocaine. The test came back positive and Kim was yet again arrested, appearing in court and being charged with possession of less than 25 grams of cocaine. Kim was lucky to be let off with just a $5,000 fine and she decided to re-enter rehab. 
The crazy thing was, her now famous ex-husband was doing the exact same thing regarding drug use, but his fame, of course, would unfairly be his get-out-of-jail-free card. In August, D12 toured without Eminem for the Warp Tour, but were kicked off the tour for fighting with fellow hip-hop artist Esham from the group Natas, who were also axed from the tour over this. A physical altercation had broken out between the D12 members and Esham over comments he made regarding Eminem's daughter Hayley in his song Chemical Imbalance. In October, the third single from the album Devil's Night was released called Ain't Nothing But Music, but it failed to chart. This would also be the case for the highly anticipated fourth single titled Fight Music that was released in November and spoke about violence and the youth of America. Both of these tracks were released around the time of 9-11 which is said to have affected sales as Eminem said that no one wanted to listen to a song like that at such a tragic time as they were too distracted and mourning over the tragedy. Fight Song, however, did reach number 11 in the UK. Mr. Porter believes that Eminem claims it was his best vocal performance, as he was quoted as saying, It was his best vocal performance ever in his whole career, from the verse to the hook. He felt like that was his best. D12, barring Eminem, were touring the UK when the 9-11 attack occurred, causing them to be stranded in the country due to the US shutting down all flights. With not much else to do, they decided to head into the studio in West London and record a song the day after about the tragedy, titled 9-11, with vocalist Terry Hall and Damon Albarn of Blur and the Gorillas at his private studio. The song was stylized with a Middle Eastern style beat, but it was simply too soon and the single failed to chart. As the Marshall Mavers LP and Devil's Night era came to a close, it opened many doors for Eminem in regards to producing and with Slim Shady Records. Further work with D12, his own solo projects, including the film 8 Mile and his upcoming fourth studio album were all in the works. He was an extremely busy man, balancing relationship issues with his ex Kim and issues with his mother Debbie, trying to raise his daughter Haley, and the numerous lawsuits he was dealing with at the time. Proof believes for a short period in early 2002 that Eminem had straightened out and got off the drugs, but the busy schedule would see him take them up again during production of his acting and film debut for 8 Mile. Next time on Lyrics of Their Life podcast, we continue with the Eminem story in part three, as Eminem receives a shock letter off of his estranged father Bruce, Eminem releases his fourth studio album, The Eminem Show, and his highly acclaimed film and soundtrack for 8 Mile. Eminem's family unexpectedly grows a few extra members, and Eminem enters more heated feuds as the modern-day king of controversy becomes the biggest superstar in the music industry, and the drama in his life escalates to insane new levels. Thank you for tuning into that episode. Don't forget to check out our other episodes from Season 1 and 2, ranging from Kurt Cobain and Freddie Mercury to Prince, Chasey Chapman and Stevie Nicks, and up-and-comers like Youngblood, Tones and I, and The Kid Leroy. 
For more information regarding this episode, including weekly updates and more, head to our Facebook page at Lyrics of Their Life Podcast or our website at lyricsoftheirlife.com. You can also find us on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok and even YouTube and Spotify where you can find a range of playlists featuring the music of every artist covered in the Lyrics of Their Life podcast so far. If you really enjoy the podcast and would like to give back for the hard work that goes into it, it would be greatly appreciated if you could leave a five-star rating and review on iTunes, or you can now rate the podcast on Spotify. Don't forget to let your friends and family know about what they've been missing out on, and feel free to click the free subscribe or follow button to the podcast wherever you listen, so you can receive a notification every time a new episode becomes available. If you would like to support the podcast financially, then please feel free to head to Patreon or buymeacoffee.com, where you can contribute your support for the podcast in exchange for some bonus content, ranging from as little as $1 donations to really anything you like. Every bit of support is greatly appreciated, and it means I can continue to bring you more great episodes in the future. This podcast is created and researched completely independently, so your contribution would really help this podcast continue on. Once again, thank you all for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode. I'm your host Adam Hampton, and this is Lyrics of Their Life.